Welcome again, everyone. Quite a Christmas text that we read there. It's hard to say thanks be to God when it, you don't really understand yet what we're saying thank you for. Uh, I'm going to try and unpack that a little bit because even after being a pastor for many years, going to seminary, the first time I read that, I thought, what in the world does that even mean? So, but Zechariah 5 was our chosen text, so I stuck with it, even though it was Christmas time, and I would have preferred to have a break or an easy, easier text to read. But let's get into this chapter by talking a little bit about New Year's resolutions, because if stats are correct or anywhere near correct, then most of us in this room have taken a stab or will take a stab at some, making some New Year's resolutions. Now, I don't formalize mine. I don't write them down anywhere, which is a way to say that I really don't feel like uh, having to do them. And if I write them down, that means I've actually committed to them. But there's something about a new calendar that makes us think about having a clean slate, that we have some sort of do-over in the coming year, that we have a whole new year to become the type of person that we want to be. Now, Mark Twain is a little bit discouraging When we think about resolutions, as I quoted in the front of your bulletin, now is the accepted time to make your regular annual good resolutions, and next week you can begin paving hell with them as usual. Not so encouraging. Well, what about this very strange passage? How is that relevant to talking about New Year's resolutions? Well, let's take a few moments to make what Zechariah is saying a bit more clear, because he's actually talking very presciently for us as we embark on this new year. And this audience that he's writing to, this ancient nation of Israel, seems to share some of the very same barriers that we have when we think about our upcoming year and becoming the type of people that we want to become. And I would submit to you that Zechariah offers two antidotes to two very common barriers to us becoming healthy, integrated people. He offers us antidotes to deceitfulness and to exhaustion. Deceitfulness. We really make resolutions intended to reveal the very best about us and to conceal the very worst. Our resolutions, at least in part, are dependent upon us not being truthful with ourselves and with others. We're trying to put the best spin on our lives, and that leads to exhaustion. Underneath these curb appeal type of resolutions, working on others seeing ourselves differently, we really do want rest. We look back, many of us, at this last year, and just we feel just worn out. We feel exhausted. We want to be whole. We want to, at some level, be seen for who we really are and yet still be accepted. We're going to look at these visions and see how they might help us. First of all, the first vision, it's a giant flying scroll. It's 30 or 20 by 10 cubits, which is about 30 by 15 yards. It's a huge scroll elevated in the sky. And in the size of cities back then, what is being said is that everyone would be able to see this in the sky. And it says every thief on one side and every banner or every liar on the other side will be banished. Uh Uh-oh. We need to see two things about this first vision. One is the size of the scroll, and secondly is the sins in the scroll. 
the size. Well, why give dimensions other than to say that this is a very large scroll that no one could miss? They're very unusual dimensions for a scroll. This is not the type of dimensions that a scroll would have, which is usually about a foot wide and very long and rolled up. This is more of like a billboard in the sky. And the original readers would have noticed that the dimensions are very specific. It's not only large, but the dimensions correspond to specific parts of Solomon's temple, of the temple that the Israel had built and had now been destroyed when they were taken into exile. The temple had been the primary place of worship for Israel, where God came down and met with his people, made covenant with them. Just as a husband and wife exchanged rings, this is where God exchanged a sign to be in covenant with his people, to be in relationship with his people. And he gave them the sign of the law and gave them the sign of this great edifice in which they could worship, and it had been destroyed. It was rubble. And so what does God do through Zechariah? He shows up in a very different way. With the temple in ruins nearby, he gives them this great vision, or gives Zechariah this vision of this great billboard that corresponds with the dimensions of that temple. He is saying to them, despite the rubble, I am with you. I am present with you. I am recovening with you. Even though you have run, you have wandered, you have been a sinful people, he is present again with them. But there's a problem, because what does the scroll say? The people that called themselves God's people, the people that are receiving this vision, had devolved into thievery and lies. The temple, as I said, was the place where the tablets of the law were housed, and they contained an oath from God that he who had rescued them from slavery, the gracious, loving father, had brought them out of Egypt, and now this is how you are to live. This is my oath, and your oath is living according to the way that I've designed you to live. They are to live in such a way that gives honor to that oath, just as a husband and wife take on rings, and they're to live in such a way that gives honor to the oath, the covenant that they took, and honor to the ring that's on their hand. That's what those tablets of law were meant to do. They're to direct people to live into their humanity, to live into the way that God had created them to be, to live into that relationship. But you say, but wait a minute, it says there's a curse here. The curse is the same word for oath that's used over and over in the Bible. You see, God is renewing his covenant promises, his oath to them. For hundreds of years, those who were supposed to love him, supposed to live by these commandments, had not done so. And yet he still holds out this as an oath to be re-covenanted with them. Now, why thievery and lying? Why those two particular sins? Was it just because those two happened to be rampant in society at the time? It could be. But there's also something symbolic about the, the sins that are mentioned here. Why thievery and lying? Everyone who steals is a very pithy way of saying everyone who harms his neighbor. That's why the commandment not to steal is in the Ten Commandments, because it means you're harming your neighbor. You're taking something from them rather than being a loving people who give to their neighbors. Everyone who steals is a pithy way of saying everyone who harms his neighbor, and everyone who swears 
falsely as a way to sum up a blatant disregard for God's authority. This corresponds with the third and the seventh commandment, representing the two tables of the law, dealing with Israel's duty to their neighbor and their duty to God. And this is exactly the same way that Jesus sums up the law, that you are to love your neighbor as yourself and that you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that that sums up the law that was given to Israel. And that's what Zechariah is saying, is that the thieving, thievery in the line is symbolic of the way that they have given up caring for their neighbor and now are taking instead. And they have given up living under the authority of God. They've given up relationship with him. So these two sins are symbolic of the way that Israel has simply wandered away, thumbing their nose at God. And the implications, what are the implications? Banishment, to be cut off. But let me submit to you here that the threat here is not a wagging finger in the sky, that if you cross this line one too many times, then you're cut off. I'm done with you. Here's the line in the sand, because banishment is not an entirely precise word. The underlying Hebrew word is more like exempted from obligation. What Zechariah is saying is that Israel, God's people, have become the husband or wife that wears their wedding ring while committing adultery, while having an affair. They have the sign, but they don't have the thing signified. And what God is saying is, of course, I want to return you to this land of promise. I want to make it flourish. I want you to rebuild my temple. But why would you rebuild my temple when you don't love me, when you don't know me, when you walked away? It's like having a wedding ring but not being married. He can't give his ring to someone who's serially unfaithful. The psychiatrist Scott Peck Many of you would recognize his name from the the book, The Road Less Traveled. But he wrote of meeting a 15-year-old named Bobby who was increasingly troubled because his 16-year-old brother had recently killed himself with a a .22 rifle. He tried to probe Bobby's mind in therapy, but he got nowhere. And searching for ways to establish a bond with his patient, he asked him what he had gotten for Christmas. And Bobby said that he had gotten a gun. And so Dr. Peck was stunned, of course. What kind of gun? A twenty-two rifle. More stunned. How did it make you feel getting the same kind of gun that your brother killed himself with? It wasn't the same kind of gun. It was the same gun. Bobby had been given as a Christmas present by his parents the very gun that his brother had used to kill himself. He met with the parents. He was shocked by this sort of behavior. But what he said was most striking about their behavior was not the behavior itself, but their absolute refusal to acknowledge any wrongdoing on their part. They were completely unhinged from moral reality. Two decades later, after converting to Christianity, he writes, One thing has changed in 20 years. I now know Bobby's parents were evil. I did not know it then. I felt their evil but had no vocabulary for it. My supervisors weren't able to help me name what I was facing. 
As scientists, rather than priests, we weren't supposed to think in terms such as evil. He goes on to say that he had worked with convicted felons. He had been many times to prison to do counseling there and yet yet rarely sensed evil present in the people that lived there, like he had sensed evil in Bobby's parents. And what he realized is that evil is not primarily indicated simply by sinful acts, but rather it's the refusal to tolerate one's sense of their own sinfulness. The central defect of evil, he says, is not the sin, but the refusal to acknowledge it. The scroll goes out over all the land, and it references behavior, but it doesn't aim at behavior. God sends the law. He sends the prophets. He sends this vision of a scroll. He sends Jesus as the ultimate and final prophet, not so that we'll behave, but so that we'll be truthful about ourselves and who God is in response to that truth. So each of us here this morning, our challenge from this very complicated and ancient text is to recognize how deeply our own deceit runs, to own up to it, and then to fall into his forgiving embrace. That's the first vision. The second vision, it gets even stranger There's this basket with a lead top, and there's a woman in the basket who's called wickedness. And there's two other women who are storks who carry the basket out of Jerusalem to Babylonia. What is going on here? How can we possibly live in response to this text? Well, a couple of things. One is the term Babylonia is actually correct and incorrect at the same time. It's correct in the larger sense because the underlying Hebrew word shinar was used to reference all of Babylon, but it's a little bit imprecise. It's much more specific. It's an actual place, shinar. And what Zechariah is saying is that these two women will take the deceit and take it to shinar where it belongs. Shinar is the location of what? Of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, Shinar, is the place where you go to make a name rather than to receive a name. It's a place of refusal of God's authority. It's the place that entrusts human ingenuity and independence. The playwright Arthur Miller has a, a play called After the Fall, and one of the characters, Quentin, says this, you know, you know, more and more, I think that for many years I looked at life like a case at law, a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart, then what a good, good lover you are, then a good father, finally how wise or powerful or what the hell ever. By underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what, I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight, and all that remained was this endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which, of course, is another way of saying despair. 
We have two forms of despair, really. One is the despair that Arthur Miller is talking about because no one is ultimately watching. There's no ultimate reason to wear ourselves out like we do each and every year. There's no ultimate reason to have New Year's resolutions because why does it matter? Everything will return to dust. Why do we make such an effort to to reveal the best about ourselves and conceal the worst? But there's a despair within Christianity as well. Even though if we believe there's someone that is watching, that there isn't an empty bench, we worry that someone is watching and we better not tick them off. Our resolutions aren't really all that different. Our despair is because there is someone watching. We need to hear the rest of the story. The rest of the story that leads to Jesus, the final prophet. Because it wasn't just that the angels closed the lid on injustice and thievery and dishonesty and sent it away, but what we celebrate in the time of Advent, in the time of Christmas, is that Jesus was sealed down, that he was sent outside the camp to die a thief's death, to die a liar's death on our behalf, that God himself descends and becomes the judged judge, that Jesus is the judge who comes and takes your place at the defendant's table. The poet David White says that the antidote to exhaustion is not rest, but wholeheartedness. What we need this year is not an extended vacation. It's not a bigger paycheck. It's not more sleep. It's not a year of keeping resolutions, although all of those things in the aggregate may help. What we need is wholeheartedness. We need rest for our souls by wholeheartedly throwing ourselves on the mercy of the court and boldly, presumptuously asking that the judge actually come down off the bench and take our seat at the defendant's table. That our greatest New Year's resolution would be to rest both from our self-promotion and our self-reproach. That we could wholeheartedly rest this year in the mercy of Jesus. That we could rest in the final verdict being not guilty. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to rest. Help us to rest as a church. Help us to rest as a family. Help us to rest as individuals. Help us to rest with you. Father, I pray that you would enable us to wholeheartedly lay ourselves before you, pleading for mercy. And we pray that you would give us the hope that is ours in Advent, that is ours at Christmas, that is ours in the coming Epiphany, that you came to be one with us and for us and on behalf of us. Lord, we look to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.